Years ago, I sat in a crowded dorm room at the University of Minnesota. The agenda that night was to consider a passage from the Gospel according to John, and there were young men in, all crammed in there, sitting on the beds and chairs and on the floor. They were not most of them, anyway, Christians. And in the course of conversation, an Asian student shared the story of his conversion to Baha'i, the Baha'i faith, an Eastern religion. And he explained to us in the group that there was a man who had worked with him and introduced him to this faith. And he said to him, this was the, the, the critical moment, he said, pray to the prophet Baha'u'llah and ask him if Baha'i is the way of truth. He said that did it for him. He prayed that prayer. He became convinced. And he was now an active opponent of Christianity. At least as he understood it. That experience lodged in my mind. And it connected again some years later when a Muslim evangelist applied the same strategy with me. He said, pray to Allah and ask Him if Muhammad is the prophesied prophet, if the Quran is a divine book. Pray. I understand that Mormons use the same approach. They say something along these lines as they're seeking new adherents. Read the Book of Mormon with an open mind, asking God to show you if it is the truth. Now let's put those three together and we see the relationship between them. But in all three cases, the connection is subjective. Here is what we believe. How does that strike you? How does God move your heart as you consider what we believe? Now it's at this juncture that the Christian faith takes on an entirely different approach. The Christian faith rests everything on the objective historical reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. We see this put so clearly by the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Corinthian church and says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's not if Christ has not been raised, then we go on being a Christian and we, we rework our theology a bit. But it's all empty. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You get his point, don't you? He just keeps making it over and over. Get this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Christianity, in its true sense, is more than you subjectively choosing to trust its teaching. Christianity rests everything on the historical reality that Jesus died and that He physically rose from the dead. Demonstrating that what He said was in fact true. Jesus' resurrection confirms His claim to be God in flesh. His claim to die in the place of sinners as our substitute. His claim to give eternal life to all who trust in His name for salvation. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, He's a fraud. His followers are lost in a fog of deception. 
And the apostle, as we have read here from 1 Corinthians 15, staked everything on that idea. Everything. Now, am I saying, do you read me to say this? Am I saying that true Christians have no inward experiential assurance of the truth that they embrace? I would not say that. But this subjective, spirit-given assurance does not operate independently of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, it bears witness to it. So Jesus put the matter in this way. Let us put the matter now in this way. The disciples of Jesus did not die merely for what they believed. Which the, inher- which the adherents of many religions have done through the centuries. The disciples of Jesus did not die merely for what they believed. The disciples of Jesus died for what they saw. They believed on account of what they witnessed. Adrian Warnock puts it so well this way, simply. The church did not create the resurrection stories. Instead, the resurrection stories created the church. Don't think for a moment that he means by stories fables. He speaks here of story in the sense of historical event that are the foundation and the inspiration of everything else. This all means that we have before us always an objective investigation of ancient historical evidences of Christ's resurrection. They are vital to the Christian faith. The Apostle Peter acknowledged this when he insisted in somewhat different contexts. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We have not concocted fables. These are not stories, fictional stories, that we just put together, but He presents Himself as an eyewitness. This is historical, objective. It's what we saw that is at issue here, says Peter. Now let's appreciate that this is then an investigation of ancient history. There's no video footage. There are no audio records, nor are there archaeological findings to aid us in this particular matter. But such lack of evidence never deters ancient historians as they seek to understand the past. I've done considerable study in Roman Empire's history. I never, ever heard anyone say, of all of the books that I read in my graduate studies, never heard anybody deny that Tiberius Caesar lived. And yet there are four times the historical records to the life of Jesus and to his crucifixion than there are to the existence of Tiberius Caesar. We're dealing with ancient history. There isn't video footage. There aren't audio records. There are not archaeological findings that help us on this matter. But as with every investigation of ancient people and events, we must turn to an analysis of oral tradition, of written text, and of eyewitness accounts. And never do we look at any eyewitness account and say that it's absolute truth in its own standing. But as we put the evidences together, we are talking about history, about what they saw. Historians remind us then that absolute certainty of irrefutable evidence is not possible in reconstructing ancient events. But we can seek proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And such proofs emerge from the historical record as compelling historical evidence for Christ's resurrection. 
Now for this church, for those that have read the Bible, for those that have walked in Christianity for some time, what I'm putting together here is nothing novel to us. But perhaps you've not put the pieces together and seen how they fit. And so I hope to do that for us here today. And for those who are not followers of Christ, I just encourage you to hear the conversation. As I've listened to the conversation in the other direction, including with my friend in the Baha'i faith. But as we consider it, this is, these are the pieces that are available to us that we put together as we consider and sing about today the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, piece number one is Jesus' prophecies. During his earthly ministry, Jesus repeatedly told his followers that he would rise from the dead. Mark 9, verse 9 is, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. We can't take the time to go into the reason they use the Son of Man, but He is connecting there His resurrection with His identity as God in flesh. But He speaks here about after I've risen from the dead. Matthew 12, 40, Just as Noah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Not forever there, but for a short time. Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 17, 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of man and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Notice their response. They were greatly distressed, which is another way of saying they had no idea what to do with this. He's going to die. He's going to be gone. He just said he's going to rise. They're distressed. Maybe we'd put it today in these terms. They're freaked out. They don't know what to make of it. Matthew 20, 17 and following, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. John 2, the Jews said to him, What sign? Do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Again, they didn't put it together in the moment, but they remembered it after his resurrection. It's not until after Jesus rises that the disciples recognize their own ignorance, their failure to understand what Jesus was saying. Even someone who rejects the Bible as God's Word must acknowledge that the disciples of Jesus picture themselves as clueless. It provides a level of authenticity to the account. Whatever they thought was going to happen during Jesus' lifetime. Think of it. These disciples who promote His name, now that He's gone, whatever they thought was going to happen during His lifetime, something else happened. It didn't go as they had planned. But when they thought back on it, it went precisely as Jesus had said. Each of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' death paint the disciples in exactly this clueless position. This wrong position, in fact. When he dies, they are fearful. When he dies, they are depressed. They are confused. They are utterly defeated. That's how they picture themselves. They're not running around telling people, now listen, 
Get your lawn chairs, get your sunglasses, let's camp out at this garden tomb because something big is going to come down. I mean, something big and bright. Let's get ready for it. Come, join us. You'll see what we're talking about. He told us this is coming. Not at all. Their testimony was we didn't get it. Only Jesus understood what was coming. He stated it clearly. He staked his identity on it. There was no ambiguity, no subjective appeal. Pray to the Father and ask Him if I'm Messiah. Jesus offers objective evidence that cannot be missed. I will rise from the dead on the third day. And all of Jesus' disciples will experience some fundamental change to their perspective soon after he dies, not before. Second piece of evidence. Jesus died. Jesus died by crucifixion on the day Pontius Pilate sentenced him to death. Even the fiercest enemies of the early Christians granted this point. The annals of first century Roman historian Tacitus assigns Christ's execution to Pontius Pilate. You can go check his book out of the library. It's translated into English, and you can see the Latin on the other page, and you can see it right there. Tacitus says, Pilate killed Jesus. You don't misassign that history. The Jewish historian Josephus and the Jewish Talmud speak of Pilate's execution of Jesus. The Greek satirist Lucius of Samosata who despised Christianity, mocked Jesus for dying on a cross, as did other pagans. He did not say he didn't die. Each of the four four Gospels record this account, and you can be certain even more so that Jewish authors did not accuse a Roman procurator of executing someone he did not execute. Now, in modern times, we have a few scholars who have claimed that Jesus did not die on the cross. But the theory does not fit the evidence whatsoever. Jesus died in full view of the masses of Passover pilgrims. He was guarded to the death by soldiers, and no one survived the tortures of crucifixion. More on that in a moment. But even John Dominic Cross, and a scholar who rejects the resurrection of Jesus, writes this, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical ever can be. He died. Thirdly, the third piece of evidence that we put together in this puzzle as it holds together is that the disciples believe that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them in person. I'm not saying that Jesus did rise from the dead, or that He did appear to the disciples in resurrected form. I'm I'm saying here only that the disciples believed this. Can we grant that? Some critics of Christianity have recognized how crucial this point is, and they've insisted that the resurrection appearances of Jesus are legends. That is, they grew up over time as one generation passed on the story to the next generation. But this fails to fit the historical record. It fails to fit everything historians know about legend. Both ancient Roman and Jewish authors speak of the disciples' firm belief in the resurrection appearances. Again, you can go to the library and check it out, read it in Latin or in a translation in English, but the Roman governor Pliny mentions this, showing mild curiosity about this firmly held belief by these Christians. They believe Jesus rose from the dead. Bolder Angrier critics, such as the philosopher Celsus, derided the early followers of Jesus for believing in the resurrection appearances. As the enemies are saying this, it it adds credence to the reality. It's not just the Christians saying this about themselves, but their opponents are saying, you people are really wrong. 
Because you're talking about a man who rose from the dead. They believe that's what the Christians believe. And the Jewish author Josephus seems to simply accept that Jesus rose from the dead. The four gospel writers, well, that's quite clear. Read from John chapter 20 here today, and they all proclaim that Jesus appeared to them. Add to these the many witnesses and the early church leaders who knew the apostles, and also in their writings, individuals such as Clement of Rome and Polycarp, all bear witness to the disciples' conviction that the risen Christ appeared to them. This was the consistent testimony of the ancient record. And the evidences just continue to pile up as we consider oral tradition, not just written tradition as we've done thus far, but as we consider oral tradition. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul quotes a creed that comes from oral tradition saying that the disciples saw the risen Christ. Why does that matter? That Paul said it. Paul writes before the Gospel authors. He writes very early, within less than a generation of Jesus' death, and he's quoting from a creed, which indicates very early official statements that the disciples saw the risen Christ. Add to that the oral tradition that comes to us in summary form in the book of Acts as we read of the sermons of Acts. The historical record points to a very early belief that the disciples saw the risen Savior, and this does not fit the definition of legend. In fact, good writing and research has been done to indicate there is simply no time for legend to develop. German theologian Julius Muller in 1844 challenged anyone to find a single example of legend developing this quickly anywhere on earth, anywhere in history. And the answer to Muller was absolute silence. No one has ever demonstrated that because it's not legend. Another angle that is utterly ridiculous in the ancient setting, but has come to us, and many believe, and that's that the disciples of Jesus spoke figuratively. They didn't mean that he literally rose from the dead. They just meant that his spirit lives on, and he's impressed us, and we're following him, and this type of thing. They they spoke metaphorically, not literally. And again, the problem with this theory is that the idea never crossed the minds of anyone in the first century. Anyone in the second century, even if you dismiss 1 Corinthians 15, you say we're not going to listen to what Paul says there, listen to the ancient Roman philosophers such as Celsus or the Roman physician Galen. They will go into long depth, I've read what they've said, they go into long depth saying the Christians believe in a physical resurrection. That's why we despise them. They're so confused, they're so mixed, that they were never saying they were speaking figuratively. That was their whole point. They're speaking literally, physically, bodily. And it upset them deeply. Atheistic scholar Gerd Ludemann writes Habermas and Lacona concludes that it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. The words of an atheist. We can't get around this historically. There was something that happened. Let's put together the next piece, and that's the empty tomb. The tomb in which Jesus was laid to rest was empty. Nothing would have silenced the disciples more completely than to produce the body of Jesus. No one ever did. No one ever tried. Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. 
Now let me stop there at verse 38 and say it's really easy for us to read that as just two guys having a conversation. It's sort of like a sale over at Aldi across the street here. You know, it's just kind of an uh, interaction between the two and a sort of little deal they come up with. This is Pilate. This is Joseph. These are prominent individuals, and Pilate's word is law. Verse 59, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. I don't know how that got in there, but uh, something got cut in. Not cleverly devised myths. It didn't go together that way, but it just kind of fits nicely, doesn't it? The next day, that is the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Again, you, you, just, you don't say those things making them up. You don't put words like that in the mouth of Jesus' enemies who have official Roman support there in Jerusalem. It is what they said. They knew what Jesus had predicted. Therefore, they say, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now again, you you may reject the Bible as authoritative. I don't, of course, but you could do that. It's still a document. It's a document that was there. You don't say things like this about Roman officials and guards, and just get by with it as you invent a story. They knew what Jesus had said. There is a careful connection between Pilate and Joseph and where Jesus' body is going to be taken, and you don't mess with that by writing a story and misquoting people. Verse 66 speaks of sealing the tomb. This is not the tomb, but a first century tomb that would have been in the likeness of the tomb where Jesus was placed because of the wealth of Joseph of Arimathea and all that we know about graves and burial in that day. But let's, let's, let's call a witness here. Let's call a centurion to talk to us for a moment and to say what he thinks about this. Centurion. Is it possible that Jesus' body was never actually placed in Joseph's tomb? Is that a possibility? That it just got taken down from the cross and got taken somewhere else? No, says our centurion. Pontius Pilate, our Roman governor, ordered the body of Jesus into the care of Joseph for burial. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest council of Israel, and had the full authority of Rome over Jesus' corpse. You know what we do to someone who poses the Sanhedrin against Rome's wishes? Do you know what we do to a member of the Sanhedrin who doesn't follow through on Pilate's orders? You see those three bloody crosses? That's what we do. No chance. Well, Mr. Centurion, we ask this, is it possible that Jesus' body was stolen after he was placed in the tomb? No, sir. You don't live around here, do you? Pilate ordered the tomb sealed. That means we rolled that stone in front of the hole, but it also means that we stretched a cord across that door and we sealed it on either side with the seal of Rome. 
I've done that before. There's wealthy people. I've guarded their tomb, and I know we guard that tomb with our life. If that seal is broken, we die. We're executed. We guard it at the cost of our lives. And I don't mind telling you, as a Roman centurion, that if an old woman comes up to break that seal, if a child comes up to break that seal, we will take their head off their body before we would let that seal be broken. Nobody crosses us. Not possible. That tomb was not robbed. That body was not stolen. Well, Mr. Centurion, is it possible that Jesus was actually alive? that he looked dead, but once in the tomb, that he revived and was able to escape. Was Jesus really dead? Uh, Yeah, he was good and dead. Even if he wasn't, no one could get out of that tomb, but especially not someone who had been tortured the way that he was. But it's a ridiculous suggestion, sir. That Galilean was as dead as dead gets. Mr. Centurion, one more question. What do you think happened? Why is the stone rolled aside today and the seal broken and the tomb empty? I don't know. makes no sense why those guards are still alive. Something strange. People are saying, I don't know. I don't know, sir. I can't answer that question. But as we answer that question, why the empty tomb? Why does this matter? Why is this a piece of a puzzle that's so significant? It's this. If the body of Jesus was in the tomb, the resurrection appearances the disciples reported would have proven meaningless. They would have been hallucinations, dreams, visions, or something of the like. No matter what the disciples saw, Jesus would be dead. That would be objectively proven. His body decaying in Joseph's tomb. It's also true, of course, that the empty tomb without the resurrection appearances would be nothing more than a mystery. It's an empty tomb with no body, and that's really all that it is. But together, these two pieces of evidence work in powerful tandem and so weaken alternative theories that you're led to believe God Himself rolled away the stone. Not to let the risen Jesus out necessarily, but to let everyone else look in and to find it empty. Putting those two together. Again, we have those pieces, but consider the two in tandem. The disciples are claiming we saw the risen Christ and everybody can look in that tomb and say there's nothing there. And All of the answers that can come as to what happened to the body of Jesus look really, really weak against these two evidences. But is there evidence that what the disciples saw was real? Was their witness believable? This leads to the next piece, and that is the transformation and the martyrdom of the apostles. This has to be answered. On Friday night, the eleven disciples of Jesus betrayed Him. They abandoned Him on the Mount of Olives. In the middle of that night, early Saturday morning, by our calculations, Peter claimed that he never knew Jesus, didn't know who He was. On Saturday, the disciples cowered in hiding, their discouragement and grief displayed by Mary at the tomb on Sunday morning and by the two disciples who lived in Emmaus. Luke 24. But then, on Sunday, 
everything changed. Remember, they had not understood Jesus' prophecies about his resurrection. The Roman accounts and the historians and the Jewish authors of the ancient time never looked at this and said, yeah, the Christians kept saying he's going to rise from the dead. There was that message, their way knew what Christ had said, but that's not where they leaned. Where they leaned was to hide. To get away from those who could kill them, like they killed their Savior. Who they really wondered if he was the Savior. But from this day forward, from this Lord's day on, they preached the resurrection of Christ bodily wherever they went. They preached to crowds and they preached to individuals. They preached to Jews and to Gentiles, to the rich and to the poor, to men and women and children. They preached that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, how sure are they? They were imprisoned. They were beaten. They were ridiculed. They were opposed. And in the end, all but the Apostle John were executed. And he was exiled. And the ancient Roman record entitled The Lives of the Caesars records many of their executions. Habermas has a great line here. He says, Liars make poor martyrs. Liars make poor martyrs. If your belief in Jesus' resurrection is figurative, if it is a legend, if you have concocted stories to deceive people, if it was a dream, if it was a hallucination, the prospect of having your head cut off of your body has a way of clearing your mind and turning you from a liar into a confessor. The disciples all died believing that they had seen the risen Christ. They paid with their life for it. You can throw us in prison. You can beat us and whip us. You can confiscate our possessions. You can sever our heads from our bodies. But we are going to enter into eternity into the presence of the risen Christ. We fear Him far more than we fear you. Do what you must. Jesus lives. And none of them back down. Even the Roman authors, the pagan authors, who had no time for Christianity, recognized they died for this belief. Liars make poor martyrs. And that points us to our last piece of evidence, which balances the preceding point so ably, you have to think there's a divine hand in it all. And this is really a critical piece of the puzzle. And that is the conversion of Saul the persecutor and the conversion of James the skeptic. Saul of Tarsus caused more damage to the infant church than anyone else in its infancy. No ancient writer attempted to refute this fact. Nobody said he was a secretive follower of Jesus who's just doing this as a ruse. No one ever attempted that. They would all agree that Saul did much to harm the church. Saul was a rising leader in Israel and his efforts to crush the Christian faith were infamous. But just like that, we say, on a dime, everything changed. There was this radical transformation of this one who was intensely persecuting Christians. Suddenly he's preaching Christ risen. And if you go to Paul and you ask him, people don't believe the Bible is God's Word, I understand. They don't believe that it is without error, that it is God's Word. But they do know Paul wrote these texts. And he said, here's the reason for the change. I saw the risen Christ. We find that recorded in Acts chapter 9 with Luke's associate. 
We find that in the mouth of Paul in a number of places in Acts where he speaks before unbelieving crowds. And we find Paul bringing up this idea as he writes to the churches at Corinth, the multiple churches in the region of Galatia, and the church at Philippi. Paul's rise to prominence in the church as the apostle to the Gentiles is entirely inexplicable. Why not accept his own explanation? And Paul also proved his faith in the risen Christ by dying for him, beheaded by Nero. I saw Jesus. Coupled to Paul's transformation is the transformation of the skeptic James. When, James. when Jesus died, James did not believe He was Messiah. John chapter 7 and verse 5, he rejected Christ's Messiahship. And on the cross, if this isn't telling, Jesus turns His believing mother Mary over to whom? To John. Not her son. That's really weird in the ancient context. James, along with the other brothers of Jesus, did not believe. Jesus dies, and the next thing we know, before the dust settles, James is leading the church at Jerusalem, ground zero of Christianity. How does that happen? A skeptic, suddenly the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And the story is not clearly consistent. Let's close it here. He dies by execution at the hands of Rome for his faith in Christ crucified and risen. Now why do we say that these two conversions are so critical a piece to this whole understanding, to the pieces of evidence that we put together? Because these two put the lie to the idea that the disciples saw hallucinations, that they had dreams or visions. That's not going to convince a skeptic. That's not going to bring a persecutor to his knees before the risen Christ. Hallucinations, and by the way, we won't even get into that, but hallucinations doesn't work. Hallucinations are one at a time, one individual seeing different things. You don't have 500 plus people viewing the same hallucination, seeing the same vision. It's not how it happens. But all of that aside, that's not going to convince Paul and James. If the tomb is not empty, they're clearly not going to be convinced. If the body is stolen, they're not going to be convinced. If there is anything that would logically evidence that Jesus' resurrection is a myth, figurative, not real, didn't happen, the persecutor of the Christian church, the skeptic James, are not going to embrace Jesus as Messiah. But before the dust settles, Paul is taking the gospel at the cost of his life to the far reaches of the Roman Empire, heading west particularly. And James embraces, oh, if this isn't hard to believe, he embraces his brother as Messiah. And he leads the mother church, ground zero of Christian faith as its lead shepherd. This message is not typical of our approach to Scripture on Sunday mornings, but I wanted to invest this effort today to remind us of the objective historical foundations of our faith. These evidences have convinced many skeptics there are those that have come to conversion as they put these together and considered all the other possibilities and attacks on the faith from different angles. Others have just come to concede certain points while rejecting Christ. 
But these evidences have convinced many, atheists, many agnostics, as historians today, at least on historical lines. But there is no end, let me say, of the reasons that skeptics can supply for why Jesus did not rise from the dead, why he is not Messiah. Beyond what we've considered, some will insist, for instance, that modern science confirms that resurrection is impossible. I have to really work to remain gracious at this point. But somehow, all these years later now, we have a brain that they didn't. As if first century people didn't know this. They were every bit as acquainted with death as we are, even more so because they prepared their dead for burial by washing their corpse and wrapping it. They put the dead in the ground or in a tomb themselves, no sealed casket positioned over the grave where you assume somebody will put it after you leave and go have lunch. And they knew nobody ever came out. They knew the stench of death. They knew death always won. They did not need the help of modern science to know that death means death, that the dead are dead. This is the whole point. They saw something. Something happened they had not expected and could hardly believe. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who's done good work in the resurrection of Christ, says something had happened around which they had to reconstruct their lives and in relation to which they had to redirect their energies, even to the point of death. They were like someone who had been deeply asleep and would have preferred to stay that way, but who, on hearing the alarm clock, sprang out of bed at once and got on with the business of the day. Very close illustration, isn't it? I think that was this morning for most of us. But you get the point. They were asleep in their misunderstandings and false conclusions. But an alarm clock went off and they awoke. And that business of which he speaks was to live in a personal relationship with the risen Christ. To do what we have been doing here this morning, to read His Word, to come before His throne in prayer, to sing the praises of His resurrection power and His grace and salvation to us. They went now about the business of affirming that He was God in flesh, that His death atoned for sin, that He gave Himself as the Lamb of God to suffer the punishment of sinners in their place. That we must repent of our sin, turn from our own self-dependence and ways to believe that God has raised Him from the dead, given Him life, and that He gives salvation life to those who embrace Him. As the Apostle Paul said it so clearly and succinctly, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I think that Paul means a lot more than just verse 9. He has a lot more to say in the book of Romans. But in encapsulated form, this is it. You believe that God raised Him from the dead. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Please understand, you can miss me here. And you can draw the conclusion that what I'm saying is that a case can be made for the resurrection of Christ, and if I intellectually believe that He rose from the dead, I will be saved. I will be right with God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that your faith rests in the objective historical record of Christ crucified and risen, but you can't see it in a saving way without the work of God. 
without a work of God's Spirit to help you see this truth and embrace it for what it is. Not like the atheist who grants much of what I've argued. I can show you the authors that do. Not like that, but in a way that says Jesus defeated death and his life is mine by faith as a gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. Come to Christ not intellectually receiving the objective historical evidence of his resurrection only. Stand on that. But you must come to Christ to receive his gift of eternal life. And if you have not done that, you don't have confidence that you've done that, I would encourage you, we're here to talk about this message. You would delight us to hold us up all afternoon, if necessary, to talk about how your sin can be removed. How your standing with Christ can be made right. And how you can enter into an eternal living relationship with this risen Savior. You must come. I encourage you. Embrace Him. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And you will be saved. This is His promise. Effected by His Spirit and Word as they combine in your soul. Lord, we praise You for the record of Your Word. We praise You for the way that You have brought these pieces together to enable us to see that we are not chasing myths and fables and legends, but that the disciples saw Christ. Bring to Jesus those who know You not as Savior, we pray. And for those of us who do, we rejoice. We praise You for who You are, for the life You've given us in Christ. And we trust that our sacrifices of praise have been pleasing in Your ears this day, for we praise You as our Lord and Savior. And Jesus, we praise You as our coming King. Meet with us here and draw each of us in our own way according to Your purposes to Your side. In trust and faith we ask through Christ. Amen.